Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In this 1997 edition of Radio Curious, we visit with Bob Blinko, a Presbyterian minister who lived and worked among the Kurdish people in the Zargos Mountains from 1990 to 1996. The Kurdish people have long been aptly referred to as a millet. Millet is a Turkish term that originated in the Ottoman Empire when it ruled parts of Central Europe to the Near East from 1430 to 1921. It means any ethnic group. Until the 20th century, millets were able to control their way of life and effectively rule themselves. Now, approximately 25 million Kurdish people live in the Zargos Mountains, where the borders of eastern Turkey, northern Iraq, and northwestern Iran converge. These Kurdish people live stateless and many homeless in their ancestral homelands. Currently, they have been able to successfully defend themselves from brutal ISIS attacks. When Bob Blinko lived among the Kurds, he worked as a community organizer in their ancestral homelands and spoke at first Arabic so he would not stand out. He quickly learned Kurdish, which he later spoke only with great discretion. His stories of the Kurdish people are important to consider now in light of terrorism and other dangers inflicted against them. When Bob Blinko and I visited in the studios of Radio Curious in the spring of 1997, we began our conversation when I asked him to describe the Kurdish ancestral homelands in the Zargos Mountains, where so many Kurdish people still live. The Zagros Mountains are the uh, homeland of the Kurds, and they probably are the uh, reason the Kurds have been able to survive despite the great pressures from country sovereign states all around them, because they can retreat to these mountain fastnesses. How long have they lived in this area? Oh, they trace their lineage back all the way to the time of Herodotus, who mentions them in his uh, history of the retreat of Xenophon. So the Kurds are a very ancient people. And the time of Herodotus is about... about four centuries before Christ. So they know the area. They know the, these mountains. Yes. In fact, the Kurds have a very helpful pro proverb to understand them, which says the Kurds have no friends but the mountains. Does that term extend to uh, uh, everyone, other people? How, in other words, how insular of a culture are they? Yes, the Kurdish uh, people would probably, if they had the chance to talk to you and I today, they would talk about a Kurdistan, uh, the, the desire for a homeland. But in reality, their own uh, loyalties are much smaller in terms of tribes and large families. And that they have had the last uh, six years since the Gulf War free to develop their own Kurdish identity in northern Iraq, while the U.S. and the United Nations have pushed back the forces of Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey, only to squander this opportunity and end up without uh, you know, the ability to lead themselves. So what were you doing there? Why did you go there? 
We were part of the humanitarian relief effort after the Gulf War. Uh, when the curtain went up on northern Iraq, the United Nations created for the first time in its 50-year history a safety zone for these people. And this was in April of 1991. Right, April Just, of 91. That's correct. So you came into an area that was devastated by the war? Yes, that's correct. The people had been stampeded to the mountains by Saddam's gunships and tanks, and they were invited to come back to their own homeland uh, by the United Nations and the United States troops, which were up there at that time. So what did you find? What were the living conditions like? Well, the, the entire city dwellings and towns and villages were empty. The, virtually the entire population had fled to the mountains, not only by the tens of thousands, but by the millions. And then they, what was their life like in the mountains? Were they camping out, homeless people? Well, they had fled to the mountains with what they could take, blankets and babies, and had made terrible decisions that you and I can hardly imagine to leave behind along that torturous mountain trail the sick and the old and the young. The United States was there to try and get them to come back into their own country and, and reverse, the, uh, reverse the trip they'd made up into the snow-capped mountains. But they had no country. They are a people that was uh, taped together with Arabs and Shiites to make a country called Iraq after the, Gulf, after the uh, First World War. When you say taped together after the First World War, uh, prior to that time, Iraq obviously did not exist. Right. And uh, I know that you have some concerns about the future of Iraq existing. Well, Iraq has, uh, has served the uh, Western powers since it was created by the Western countries at the Treaty of Versailles because of its oil. And uh, it's a conglomeration of very disparate peoples who are not necessarily friendly to one another. There's many of the residents of that country who wish to separate into their own smaller and more nationalistic tribal-type units. What do you see as the future of that part of the world if it's no longer Iraq? What will it be? A new country? A, a homeland for the Kurds? Something else? Well, there's no uh, tradition over there of, of democratic government, so the uh, alternative to a single ruling dictator is descent into smaller tribal fighting. This is the, this is the very scenario that uh, people don't want to talk about, whether it's going to, uh, that it might become like Yugoslavia. Well, uh, talk about that in, in specific mm -hmm. relationship to um, the Kurdish people. Mm -hmm. The Kurds have decided that more important than their unity to fight against Saddam or against the Turks or the Iranians, who are all major players uh, in the area, the Kurds have decided that other Kurds are their number one enemy. And in that means they've been willing to take uh, weapons from Saddam or weapons from Iran in order to fight one another. What are they fighting about among themselves? What are the issues that, that cause them to kill each other? Well, control of the customs that, uh, at the borders is a, big, is a big concern, and the control of the major cities where trade happens. This is a trade route along the old Silk Road, and the Kurds uh, are very good at trade. It's about control of the economics of the region and whether one tribal leader 
or another will be the controller. So in other words, even though they are within uh, the geographic borders of Iraq, Iran, and Turkey, they are de facto in charge. They control. Oh, yes. Uh, the areas where all these major countries come together are, are rather no man's land for the country governments themselves. For the uh, Turks, Iraqis, yes. and Iranians. Yes, that's correct. So what system of government then exists in the Kurdish-controlled area? It's a it's a traditionally a system of tribal rule and chiefs uh, that go by the name of Aghas, or sheikhs. And uh, whereas in Turkey, the government has done a, a rather uh, efficient job of removing the hostile Aghas and, and putting in their own, still the only Turkic people living in eastern Turkey are the governors and the police and the army. Well, do they have power beyond what their uh, rifle can provide? The power that the rifle provides and the tank and the cannon and the American-made F-16 airplanes that we've sold to Turkey and the power to destroy villages are pretty much the power of Turkey in that part of the world, in that part of their own country. Well, within the Kurdish-controlled area, we're looking at, at 25 million people. Mm-hmm. Um, how do they exist on a daily basis uh, when they have really no government uh, that's recognized mm-hmm. and, and no territorial lines? Yes, is 25 it, million people without a country of their own. Is it an agricultural, a sustainable yeah. agricultural society, or yes. are they constantly on the move in a nomadic sense? It's an agricultural society with a lot of pasture land and a lot of uh, tr- crops in the ground a lot of sheep and goats. This people was a nomadic people in a century had gone by, but only a very small percentage of the people now follows the crops up uh, and the pasture land up into the mountains. So they have homes, they have dwellings, yes. and, and they're pretty stationary. Mm-hmm. They, and more and more they are moving to the cities, but their population growth is so great that the country rural population is also main, being maintained. What about education? Are there schools? All these uh, governments, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria, uh, require universal education. And this becomes a tool for their own indoctrination of the Kurdish people uh, to enjoy the benefits of the centralized government that occurs from Turks, Persians, and Arabs around them. But it's, uh, it's pretty much a system that's failed on the Kurds, especially the women in addition, all Kurds who are going to these school systems are having to do it in a second language, not in Kurdish. The second language is? In Ara- it's Arabic in, Sur- in Syria and Iraq, Persian in Iran, and Turkish in Turkey. You mentioned before that the Kurds have a saying that their only friends are the mountains. Yes. This kind of presents somebody as, as a victim-type culture. Um, what drives their uh, their unity? Well, their their intellectuals and their poets dream of a Kurdistan, but the need to survive within the family and clan and tribe structure uh, requires them almost to have a deeper, smaller, more nuclear loyalty to the smaller unit. I think they are fragmented people, just as fragmented as a windshield of a car that's been broken in the uh, in an accident you find these little fragments that can hardly be put back together again 
when you talk about the small unity uh, that that commands or controls the loyalty, how small is it? The nuclear family of uh, cousins, or does it go beyond goes, first cousins? Yeah, it goes farther than first cousins. They are uh, always happy to come across someone who's a distant relative, and you know they've got many words for these beyond cousin, which serves in English to describe our distant relatives, but they have very exact words for who is related to who. In other words, uh, fourth and fifth and tenth cousins. Right, and that's right, on the uncle's side, on my mother's side. And it's important pretty much everywhere in Kurdistan to marry within that system, too. In other words, within the acknowledged family unit. Yes, keep the finances within that uh, uh, that unit. Are there people who cross beyond the units and marry out of that? When they move or? to the cities, we find that uh, Kurds relax some of these economic uh, boundaries that were caused by tribal loyalties, and they, they marry more frequently beyond uh, their own kind. I want to take a moment and say that my guest this week is Bob Blinko, a Presbyterian minister who lived and worked as a community organizer among the Kurdish people in the Zagros Mountains where Iraq meets northwestern Iran and eastern Turkey. He lived there for about five and a half years until the fall of 1996. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Bob, the relationship uh, between men and women, mm-hmm. what is it like for the Kurdish people? This is a important difference from the way uh, the Western people relate to one another, men and women. Uh, many times I would be in a Kurdish home and I would never see the women. Maybe they would make a brief appearance at the men's sitting room, a house of uh, the Middle East has two sitting rooms, one for the men, one for the women. I never took my wife to a restaurant. Women just aren't out in public like that. They they spend the time in the home, and that's where they have real power, too. What is the power they have? Well, it's the power to uh, to get their way with men, their their family men in private, where, uh, where the Westerners are not allowed to, to go and see, but they do a lot of talking and a lot of pressuring of men in terms of finances and uh, they are the ones who can make the man happy with the way they keep the house and keep it and keep uh, the domestic scene they can also make a man's life very miserable but they they don't part- the women do not participate in um, in the business or the outside world so to speak Yes, the men men hold jobs outside the home. Women, some women do the shopping, and sometimes they prefer to be completely veiled from head to foot, which is their symbol that they're still in their father's house. The same word in Persian for this veil, chador, is the same word for a tent. So that a woman with this on is giving a very certain message that she doesn't want to be bothered by any any outside men. And when they marry? When they marry, they marry... Um, and become part of the man's household, and usually under a mother-in-law, too, from the male's, male's house. Still wearing the chador? Outside the house, she would wear it. Inside the house, not. 
So you would go back and forth between the three countries in the mountainous area? We'd go back and forth between Iraq and Turkey, where we would get resupplied. Through Turkey? Yes. What kind of problems did you have at the border? Well, Turkey, although it's a NATO ally and participates in so many uh, uh, close relationships with the West, it's the fourth largest recipient of, uh, of foreign aid the United States gives, would routinely... Uh, uh, confiscate our materials, open up our stamp, stamp first-class American mail, and uh, would hold up supplies that were intended for the Kurds in Iraq. There's a real um, suspicion that we are helping Kurds to set up a, a basis by which Kurds could attack the, the Turkish uh, interests in their own country. And the we that you refer to as the United States? The, the relief workers and the United States relief effort, that's correct. Even the United States um, relief effort had trouble getting its supplies through the border. If we assume that the Turkish suspicion is their reality, mm -hmm. is there any truth to that? I think From that your point of view? My point of view is that they have projected... Uh, an illusionary, uh, um, they're projecting an illusion that the, uh, that the, uh, what's going on in Iraq where they cannot see it is somehow going to be detrimental to their own country's interests. Why? Why do they think this? Is it an ethro ethnocentric point of view that they have trying to identify something from beyond their borders? Something, there's not much room for minority groups or opinions in Turkey. The country was saved in a tremendous effort after the First World War by Ataturk, their great leader. But with that event of reuniting their entire country came a very xenophobic uh, desire to make everyone Turkic in their country. And so it was been very rough on Greeks, Armenians, Kurds, and blacks. Let's talk for a minute, if we can, about the kind of day-to-day -day life that you had while you were there mm -hmm. and the work that you did, what you saw, the successes, the failures. One of our most important works was to bring in teams of medical doctors to do surgery in northern Iraq that otherwise wouldn't get done. And the doctors came from where? They came from the United States, Canada, and Latin America. And the kind of surgeries they did? We did eye surgery teams to to uh, put interocular lens transplants into uh, cataract patients, and we also found a very capable Kurdish doctor who the doctor our Americans thought could be taught to do everything we can do, and he's in his third year of residency now in a first world setting, and he'll be able to go back and uh, continue this work that we're no longer able to do: orthopedic surgery, dental surgery, uh, OBGYN plastic burn surgery, all these. In addition to that, the U.S. AID asked us to take a, a grant and vaccinate the animals in northern Iraq. So it was our great pleasure to vaccinate the animals for the entire population of 4 million people in northern Iraq. And the vaccinations had stopped around the time of the Gulf War. Yes. Uh, before that, actually, for three previous years, uh, the Iraqi government had... Uh, neglected most of the government services to the Kurds. When you say neglected, was that um, true negligence, or did they intentionally try and 
uh, preclude these people from government services, exclude them. Yes, uh, and more than exclude and more than neglect, this was this was um, an attempt to wipe off Kurdish presence from the north. So it's more than verging on genocide, it yep. is genocide. This is genocide in Iraq, as testified by Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. When you first went there, you couldn't openly speak Kurdish. When we first went to northern Iraq, we were prepared to speak Arabic because it uh, the secret police was still in the area, and uh, we were not uh, free to speak Kurdish because it was a suspect language. You can't go to Kurdistan uh, in any of these countries and just plan to start learning the language there. It's too suspect to the uh, controlling governments. Where did you learn it? I learned Kurdish in northern Iraq starting the second day there when I was in private with my Kurdish friends, the, the new Kurdish refugees that were coming back. And your language that you used to learn it was, was Arabic. Was Arabic. Mm -hmm. um, so going back to your day-to-day -day life yes. and, and the work that you were doing. We were up every day to see the doc veterinarians off, make sure they had their uh, vaccines, and they were heading off into their appointed rounds. We were, uh, you know, perhaps preparing for a medical team to come from the United States. We had uh, daily meetings with uh, United Nations or with other relief agencies to check on the security situation. Uh, security was a daily concern of ours. Bombs began to go off at Relief Workers' House in January of 93, and we all had to make decisions either to leave or to get uh, full-time round-the-clock guards. That was not an easy decision to make, but it was necessary in order to stay. And that's what you did? That's what we did. When you left um, in the fall of 1996, uh, why did you go? Uh, we went after the United States ended its ground commitment in northern Iraq. Kurds, having decided that they would fight one another, made a deal with Saddam and, and entered a, a major Kurdish city of a million people. And it scared the United States, having come to protect the Kurds, that perhaps Saddam or his agents would also be coming to our city and take American hostages. So in the night, the Americans were ordered out that is the ones that work directly for the U.S. government. Fourteen soldiers, a, a small presence of United States soldiers, and the USAID American government workers. They left without telling us. You woke up and they were gone. We woke up and they were gone. So you were there as a Christian missionary. Yes, that's right. And you worked closely with AID. We had grants for the AID to... Uh, vaccinate the animals in northern Iraq, and to uh, survey the health, nutrition, and vaccination work of the United Nations. And suddenly our employers were gone. You felt abandoned. This well, we did. We didn't know who, what was going to happen, and that was the same day that uh, the U.S. slammed cruise missiles into Iraq, and we didn't know if this was a knockout blow against Saddam or if he was coming to our town. Then what happened? We uh, decided to go to the border and consider leaving, and indeed about half of the 18 relief workers that we met at the border decided to leave. But leaving meant we could never get back, because the Turks were eager to have us leave and then shut the door. So we stayed that night and went back, much to the relief of our neighbors, 
and stayed six more days until there was such pressure on our organization from the State Department that the organization ordered us to leave. When they, the State Department gives the pressure, puts the pressure on your organization, how, mm -hmm. how do they do that? What do they say? <laughs> they uh, made very dramatic calls to our headquarters in the <clears throat> United States uh, that no one knows what's going to happen next in northern Iraq and that the Americans need to get out. And that they don't, they're not more specific? They're... Uh, yeah. Who does Bob Lingo think he is trying to save the Kurds all by himself over there? The uh, U.S. Was, um, did not, certainly did not want, two months before a presidential election, American hostages in the Middle East. That happened once before. A uh, great detrimental loss to the <clears throat> one presidential uh, campaign. Obviously, you felt for your uh, personal safety and, and chose to leave, or did you leave because of the pressure that was put on your organization? Oh, um, <clears throat> we left because of the pressure put on our organization. Given your druthers, you'd be there now. Um, yes, that's correct. I think we would have finished our work. Uh, in a timely manner, Saddam didn't come. You see, he didn't come. He was afraid of the U.S.'s commitment to to keep him out of the safety zone, and he hasn't come, and I don't think he's coming. I think that he is very busy trying to sell oil, and that any infractions that he would cause would uh, perhaps delay that. Did Saddam have any idea that you were there, a concept of the work you were doing? Yes, when the bombs began to go off, they were sent by agents of Saddam. He was trying to uh, disrupt the relief work. I understand that there are a lot of Kurdish people who are now refugees in the United States. Why did they leave? Why were they forced out? The U.S. government took seriously Saddam's threats to murder Kurds that had worked for the American government or their relief agencies. And this was about 700 men, together with their wives and children, uh, about 6,000 Kurds came out of northern Iraq and uh, flew to, were flown to the island of Guam, the Air Force base there, where they have since been processed and come to the United States as refugees. Well, Bob Blinko, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want to ask you the question I ask all of my guests at the end of an interview, and that is, could you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? Mm -hmm. Book, A Peace to End All Peace by David Frompkin. How the Versailles Treaty ended up getting us into the kind of messes we see in the Middle East today. Bob Blinko, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you very much. Bob Blinko is a Presbyterian minister who worked as a community organizer among the Kurdish people in the Zargos Mountains, where the borders of eastern Turkey, northern Iraq, and northwestern Iran converged. This was from 1990 to 1996. The book that he recommends is A Peace to End All Peace by David Frompton. This program was originally broadcast in May 1997.
There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.